From FingerLicks1.com, this is The Debrief. I'm Josh Durso, joined in studio by Ted Baker and Gabe Petrazio. It is Friday, January 31st, and we are talking about local college enrollment, residency, economic development, and a story of official misconduct from a local official. Uh, It is an exciting show indeed. Thank you both for being here. Always a pleasure. Thank you. So, uh, Ted, aside from the topics that I just quickly rattled off, there was something that caught your eye, and interestingly enough, I thought it was a a fair topic to open the show with. Um, We had a change of heart from an elected official. That might might catch people a little bit uh, off. That doesn't happen very often, does it? No. A shout-out to State Senator Rich Funky. He was a co-sponsor of the bill to ban flavored vaping liquids, And he saw the research that said that the problems and the deaths being caused are not being caused by these flavored products. They're being caused by black market products used to essentially vape pot. And he said, I'm going to take my name off of that bill as a sponsor. And I think that's, it goes back to a topic we talk about a lot on this podcast, which is sort of the crisis of the day versus taking the overall look at things. But it's sadly... Uh, pretty rare that we see elected officials study a problem carefully and come to the realization that his position was wrong and admit it and change it. So uh, salute to Senator Funky. For me, I think the interesting part about that is that throughout the coverage of this, and and I don't want to say necessarily coverage, but the messaging from uh, Albany on this uh, hasn't really shifted despite the fact that it seems to be pretty clear now that um, most of the issues related to vaping are connected to the fact that uh, these are black market products. These are not the products that are coming from major companies and, and the ones who are um, uh, putting the most out uh, from within the industry. So I, I am curious to see if this leads to a little bit of a change. Obviously, uh, Senator Funky is not uh, seeking re-election, so there's that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it, There's definitely it, that. It seems like, and even when I was a little bit intrigued by a couple weeks, I think it was a couple weeks ago, um, the, the governor's office uh, announced that a woman from Ontario County uh, had actually died from a vaping-related um, illness. And I thought it was interesting because it didn't seem that when that story went out that it hit quite the same as... Uh, some of the earlier stories about vaping-related illnesses. So it makes me wonder if, and of course it could be fatigue on that on that topic, um, but it also makes me wonder if the the thought process from the average taxpayer, from the average resident, might be shifting a little bit too. Yeah, I don't think people are paying as much attention to it. It's kind of old news, and they've moved on to other things. But I, I think the other thing is, at the state level, the, the decision's been made. Mm-hmm. And and that's my problem with it. Is And I said this on my program and here on this program, f- fine, let's study what's going on and find out. Maybe vaping is more dangerous, but also part of the study needs to be what percentage of people who vape would go to cigarettes if vaping were banned and would the net result of that be a positive? If they go back to cigarettes and that's worse, then maybe we keep the lesser of the two evils. But there's been no real study. It was the, one of the reasons flavored products were jumped on is because it's for the children. And lawmakers <laughs> love to do things for the children, whether or not they do the children any good. Well, it's interesting too, right? Because I think um, while there has been a lot of focus on... Uh, children and kids and teens and their access to these things, 
Um, I, I believe, did New York not move to become one of the states that, that raised the legal age to buy cigarettes to 21? Has that has that enacted yet? I really should know the answer to I that. Don't I don't think I really should so. know the answer to that. Not that I'm aware um, of. But it, it's part of this campaign is that they, are, they have made so many strides in, in terms of uh, curbing cigarette use that it seems like that energy is now getting turned onto vaping. And I, I really would caution those folks because I don't know that if they sort of stepped away a little bit from the, the fighting cigarette use, that we wouldn't sort of see a return like you said, in kind of like an increase in those numbers, which have, I believe, historically been on the downward trend for something like 20-ish or more than 20 years. Um, Progress, of course. Uh, Legislatively, do you think the state will be able to push forward any kind of um, permanent ban, not just sort of executive order style, which obviously uh, Cuomo has uh, pushed last year? Um, Do you think any permanent legislation will come out of this session now on the vaping topic. I wouldn't be surprised to see a ban of these flavored liquids because I still think I think a lot of the public doesn't follow it as closely and it just again that's my problem with with so many of what things that lawmakers do is it's about appearance rather than studying the problem and solving the problem. So I don't think we'll see a complete vaping ban. There'll certainly be that effort made. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I know we don't have time to get into this in detail, but I'd like to, at a future point, kind of a related topic, there's also a bill that's going to be introduced to lower the blood alcohol content from 0.08 to 0.05. That actually, so let's quickly hit that because I did get uh, a question. We had gotten a bunch of questions over the last two weeks from, from listeners and readers um, who were curious about the viability of that because that's nothing new. Um, so let's just quickly go around the right. room. Lowering the the legal limit, the legal BAC for driving while intoxicated from 0.08 to 0.05. It has been debated before. It has been, I believe, since around 2013. I think think at least three or four times it's been introduced and has not come out of committee. Okay. So question number one is, do we think that is possible to make it through? It's always possible. I don't think it will. But the push will continue, and it's just all part of a larger effort. Uh, you know, we discussed this at length in my show. Either 0.08 is impaired, or 0.05 is, or point something is. But let's decide once and for all. And that's my complaint: is that this is being more done by pressure politics than again studying the issue. Let's determine what the point of impairment is and set the limit there, and then that should be that for all time. And I believe there's only one state in the U.S. that has .05 as the limit. I think it's Utah. I don't remember, but I believe there's one other I state that's believe, gone to 05. I'm pretty sure it's it's Utah. And the interesting thing about that, I think, is is the timing. So this story popped this week, literally, the, I want to say like 24 hours after uh, a wine and grape uh, industry story popped. And it basically outlined, and you can find it right on our homepage right now on fingerlakes1.com. Um, it outlined the economic impact of the wine and grape industry. And it, we're talking billions and billions, uh, something like an annual impact of like $6.5 billion. Right. Um, tons of jobs, tons of wages being paid through those jobs. Like the, the force that the 
craft beer and wine and cider and grape industry has had on New York State, I cannot imagine how any of those um, any of those folks would allow uh, this kind of legislation to make it through without really good science supporting it. And I think when we've talked about this before on the show, we always come back to there needs to be science behind a decision like this, and it typically is. Um, advocacy and politics rather than being that. Right. I made the prediction earlier that if if .05 is ever enacted into law, there will shortly afterward be a push for something lower. It'll be .03 and eventually be zero because that's really what all this comes down to is there are people who would like to regulate what the rest of us do. That's and that is a fair way of putting it, uh, and that's where we'll wrap that for now. Obviously, we'll go more in depth on this in another episode. Um, but getting into our topics for the week, uh, we're starting things off with a story about college enrollment. Uh, about two weeks ago, it was reported that uh, community colleges in the region in upstate New York have seen significant enrollment declines, uh, basically between nineteen and sixty percent over the last decade. Uh, no community college has seen an increase. There's an interesting note. Uh, and here's a quick look at how the declines broke down. FLCC in Canandaigua saw a decline of 19%. Cuga Community College in Auburn saw a decline of 22%. Uh, GCC saw a decline of 29%. MCC in Rochester saw a decline of 39%. And TC3, I'm not even sure how the hell this happened, but TC3 over the last decade has seen a decline of 60%. Um, and that's coming from a guy who went to TC3 back in the 2009 to 2011 time frame. Um, it is remarkable to see these declines, but I guess the question is that I have for you guys, um, and since you and I, Ted, talked about this this morning on your show, we'll start with the college student. Um, should the average person be concerned about those numbers? I was going to first say, put it on the record so there's no fake news out there. The age was increased to 21 back in July of this year, or oh, last okay. year. Okay. So yeah. it was back uh, in 2019. But uh, I will say, you know, it's interesting because I think what would be an interesting study to complement this is in the discourse a lot, we hear a lot about the state schools and how well the state, the SUNY schools are doing versus the community colleges. So I'm interested to see how they do and how they fare um, comparatively because of how strong those institutions have really become in the region. I will say it is startling. Obviously, you see this um, decline, obviously, in enrollment. And it's not just at, in higher ed, but it's across a lot of different levels. And I think that is startling to see that even at the community college level, you're not seeing as much attendance over the past 10 years. Um, it definitely is a sign to something. And I hope that maybe it's a curation of the institution to say that maybe the curriculums aren't working for them or that they don't see value in going to get this uh, degree at this community college. You know, it's shocking because FLCC has been one of the, the leaders on this front. They're, you know, one of the strongest, I would argue, community colleges in the region. Yeah. And they're right in Geneva, and they're really embedded in the community. So it is interesting to see the disparity from 19 to 60%, but I definitely think it is a sign of something. So I, I just quickly did a... a Google search just to see, and I'm, I'm finding, I found a Democrat and Chronicle story from last year, the beginning of last year, uh, that said essentially there has been over, I think, a period of, looks like three or four years, the most recent three or four years, the four-year uh, SUNY institutions have seen a decline of between one and four percent. I think four percent is the across the whole state number, so a decline, you know, a decline nonetheless, obviously not as significant as 
uh, as the community colleges have seen. But, Ted, uh, we talked a little bit about it this morning, like I said. Uh, walk us through how you sort of approached the data as you were looking at it. Well, I think, and I'd be interested to hear what Gabe says about the people that, that he knows, I, the, the purpose of college has always been you go to college to get a degree to get a better job. I think a lot of young people look around and see that that connection isn't quite there anymore. You know, what do you call somebody with a four-year degree? A barista. Uh, I mean, increasingly, I, I think that young people have a different view of the workplace and of jobs and of careers. And, and the, the other thing I wonder about, too, is as we look at some of these numbers, I was thinking about this, is that typically community college is often the starting place for lower-income students who go on to four-year. I'm wondering if we're seeing an economic impact where either the parents or the students themselves feel like they just can't afford even that lower cost of community college and they feel like they have to get out in the workplace or they feel like they have to leave the area altogether to find better economic prospects somewhere else. Well, you have the... uh Obviously, Governor Cuomo's initiative to basically eliminate tuition costs connected to state schools of all shapes and sizes. But there are a lot of, like we've talked about before, there are a lot of ancillary costs to going to college. You've got room and board. You've got the living expenses of just existing. Um, it, it isn't sort of this cut and dry process. Now, we talked about it this morning. I, I lean personally toward the product not Working, And I come from the news industry where we have a lot of products out there that just aren't working the way they did 20 or 30 years ago. Well, and that's where we talked on my show this morning about it's interesting that FLCC has the least of those losses because I argued that that I'm familiar with a lot of the things that they do because they they come on my program regularly. I think they're very plugged into the job market and their curriculum is very responsive to the needs of the job market. So... That lends some credence to what you're saying. So maybe, you know, they're the winner, quote-unquote, at minus 19%. But maybe that shows that, that, that the colleges overall have to do a better job of aligning what they teach with the job market as it's changing. Well, and it's interesting, too, because I thought really fascinating that the officials who had to respond to the data in general kind of painted this picture where, well... You know, unemployment has declined a lot since the Great Recession. You don't have a lot of folks, you know, going back to school sort of midlife, later in life to retrain, find second careers, that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, my, my thought process on that was, well, you still have, you know, when you look at K through 12 and enrollment in school districts, um, it, last year I, I did this, I created this massive table that's still on Fink Lakes One of every school district in the region. And it, it, it looked at enrollment from 1979 until 2019. And I tell you what, like the declines haven't been that significant in the last 10 years in terms of enrollment. The big declines happened before that. So <coughs> if these schools are still producing roughly the same number of students that they were 10 or 15 years ago, I just don't buy that you should have this shortage or this sudden decline in enrollment at these colleges, particularly community colleges. When you're talking about rural communities that are poorer, they should be like the number one customers of these community colleges, but the institutions seem to be getting it wrong. Well, I think there's also become a pretty big pushback against the whole concept of college debt. It's become very common now 
for young people to enter the workplace after earning their four-year degree in debt to the tune of a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars. So they're essentially taking on a mortgage almost before they've even begun their careers. And I think there's begun to be some pushback against that. I know there's been uh, I've seen some advertising campaigns touting jobs in the trades that mm-hmm. hey instead of going to college and racking up this big debt you know go to uh, plumbing and heating school and become a, an HVAC contractor or a plumber and make a decent living without incurring all that debt. Now somebody said to me somebody asked me um, is that could this be a reflection of uh, businesses and companies doing more in-house training to find the right person as opposed or to train the right person into the role that they want them to be rather than you know just going and getting a generic two or four year degree and then going into something that's entirely unrelated to the the degree that you sought those seem like awfully steep declines for that to be a factor i mean if we were talking two or three percent maybe but you know when you see tc3 off 60 percent that's huge that that gets your attention Mm -hmm. now i want to ask the, the college student what is the when you see other college students, is there, does it seem like this is, you know, on their mind? Do, do students realize that the campuses that they're on are a shell of their former selves? Or is this something that once the students get into the institution, it's not really thought about much until they're maybe an alum and they're looking back at the, the college compared to what it was in years past? Yeah, you know, that's a good point. Um, I'd say... You know, for some people, it seems like, you know, you go to school, you take your classes, and you're trying to put the big picture together, right? And and then some people are really driven to figure out what their career prospects are like and actually using alumni services and things of that sort. So there's a very unique or select group of people in that demographic, let's say. Um, so I think in that sense, I, it's not as reflexive, I feel like, because especially when you're in the moment. When you're in the moment, you're just trying to get by. You know, you're just trying to succeed in the classes and do what you're told. Um, it's different than to be more aspirational in your goals and figure out what you want per se. Even whether you're at a private institution, a state institution, or a community college. But I think something that's really important that um, that uh, that Ted brought up was the fact that right population and geography. I think that with New York State. And the amount of people who, you know, fled New York State in the past year is the number one state for people moving out. I think that definitely impacts the rural communities that we're talking about and who we're talking about that would actually take advantage of these community colleges. I think that that's a really big factor when you're considering who's coming in, who's coming out, and are we replacing those populations at all? You know, that would be an interesting way to see if, if the corridors are changing, if there's enough people coming in. And you think most people are going downstate, right? They're going to New York City. They're going to stay in that, you know, Westchester County region. But let's see how many of them are actually um, perpetuating up to, you know, upstate New York and the Finger Lakes up here with us. I feel like that's very minimal at best when you consider that flow. Yeah, and I think the other part of it, too, is something we've talked about a lot on this show is like, you know, there is not only a movement out of New York State, but there's also a movement toward the Rochesters, Buffaloes, Syracuses, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the more rural parts of upstate New York are becoming less and less filled with people. Um, so I started thinking, of, when I started thinking about this after I got through the numbers and after I got through the, 
the issue that obviously colleges of all shapes and sizes are starting to, to face. And I started thinking about what I've listened to um, folks in, in public education in, in K through 12 talk about as priorities for them. There's this movement away from the traditional high school experience, we'll say, and there's starting to be more of a focus on kind of tailoring that experience in New York State for um, for the student. And I'm curious now if all of this is kind of creating a perfect storm where in the next, say, five to ten years, we're going to see even more integration between these community colleges and high schools because neither system seems to be working optimally at this point. So are we go, could we get to a point, and I'll, I'll throw this out as the question, do you think we could get to a point where community colleges sort of act like high school extensions and sort of like career transition or like transitional uh, institutions rather than just being institutions of higher education? Because I think a lot of students who go to community colleges for that purely higher education reason are using it as sort of a transition to a four-year school anyway, whether that's private or state-run. So I'm curious if we think there could be more um, more integration between those and sort of see a scenario where 13th and 14th grade become a thing. Well, I, I think it's, it's almost that now to a certain degree. I, I think a big issue is just going to be the cost. I, it's, and, and again, I understand community Is that a way to like share the, the cost burden, though, too, at some point? Well, it, it maybe could be, because I, I think that's what we're, we're seeing. Community colleges are the starting ground mm-hmm. very often for this rural population of young people not high up on the socioeconomic scale, here's my chance, I can get two years here, then I can transfer to a four-year, and I think more and more parents and kids are looking down the line and saying, why do I want to come out of college $100,000 in debt with no real guarantee that there's going to be a job? I I think it's all just part of the the larger piece that you and I have talked about for months and months and months about the direction that, that especially rural upstate New York is going and is going to continue in over the next 10 or 20 years or more. A couple questions for the college kid. Um, you're a senior. Are you seeing or, or hearing any concern about what's next from other from your peers, from those who might be juniors or seniors or kind of looking at, you know, they're toward the end of their undergrad and they need to start figuring out what's next. Is there a vocalized concern that you're hearing from different people or different pockets of that community? You mean, I'm dealing with that now, even myself. I feel those anxieties. I think we all do in more or less. Sometimes people show it more. Um, I will say, you know, when you don't know essentially where you're going and you don't have that formal path, it's not like when you, you're told to go to high school, right? You're supposed to go through K through 12. Like this is now the real world where you have to really figure out what you need to do for yourself. But I definitely see that discourse and it, it could fall on a bunch of people. You could blame the you know, administration or the institution or the students. And I think it could be a combination of all of those factors. Um, it depends on how you access your resources and who, who you're dealing with. And obviously I can't speak to everyone, but at least in my circuit, circumstance, I would say that I do feel those anxieties. And you know, you're in that position where higher ed is great for learning, but doesn't necessarily have all of the practical skills. I'm in a senior seminar right now in the media studies department. And they're going around the room, and the professor's asking, what would we like 
to get out of this class. And out of the 10 people in the class, everyone said real-world skills. Real-world skills, what, it, what are those? So building websites, they're saying, you know, developing content, things of that sort. But that's, like, what we're talking about, though, in a way. Like, this is, like, understanding, um, you know, bringing attention to curriculum at all different levels and seeing what are we actually learning and what are we paying for. And as Ted said it, is that the right price? Should we be paying for this? And so that's a question. But for you also, going back to the aspect of the community colleges, I think community colleges are uniquely situated in a way where they are really present in high school communities already. So the high schoolers, they have people who go there, they're already connected, and then they go on and they can get an associates or something of that sort while they're there. Um, it is pretty prominent now. I think that they could build that up more, like institutionally speaking, like you're saying, investing more and partnering with them to kind of right de um, debunk that barrier let's say but I think that there's a strong connection between high schoolers who go out of the institution like seniors who enter uh, community colleges and then transfer on mm -hmm. and of course <clears throat> connected to this topic um, uh, the the workforce in Ontario County was dealt a blow uh, this past week and economic development I would argue was also dealt a pretty significant blow uh, Cherry Bundy CEO Mike Hagan uh, says the company was faced with a tough choice. Uh, reporting by the Finger Lakes Times there, uh, the move to cease operation in Geneva and open uh, that up in Michigan was a surprise to a lot of residents. But uh, at the end of the day, they said this was something that they had, they had been thinking about for a couple of years. This, is, this was nothing new. So this decision was sort of looming. Um, they produced tart Jerry, tart cherry juice that is a mouthful um so it's gone and now we here's here's the, the 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 discussion point one what's the reaction and two what's the message to economic developers who touted this as um not just locally but throughout the entire finger lakes they they a lot of folks looked at this as a shining example of See, this is what we're doing. This is why we're investing all of these state resources in these companies. Ted? Well, <laughs> there's a whole lot fishy here in my mind. First off, the reason given for moving is that there's not enough of supply of tart cherries out of Wayne County. Michigan is the largest grower of tart cherries, so they're moving to Michigan. So my first question is, you didn't know that when you started the company? I mean, the relative growth rates of cherries hasn't changed that much over the years. So, I mean, they had to have known that. Secondly, was there any effort to reach out to growers around here? If I'm a farmer in Wayne County and a company comes to me and says, if you'll plant cherries, I'll buy them all up, guess what? I'm planting cherries. Now, I know there's a delay of years from the time you plant a cherry tree to it yields. Right. But point still being... If you have this demand, why not see if you can find a supply for it in the local market? And then the part that really uh, stood out for me as I, I read the, the link to the Finger Lakes Times article, it looks to me like Cherry Bundy has changed from a company that makes cherry juice into a company that wants to be snapped up by somebody for a profit. And it's about shareholders and profits and... You know that's that's a problem. That that's again we we go keep going back to our big economic trends. A generation or two ago, companies were pillars of their community and they cared about their community and they cared about their workforce. 
And sorry, but Jerry Bundy doesn't seem to be any of those things. As soon as they saw more money somewhere else, they're out the door. And then what I haven't seen, and I will, we'll get into this further, is exactly what benefits and what tax breaks and things did they receive from New York State, only to say, see ya, we're off to Michigan. Gabe? You know, I, I look at it from the city perspective and the city government because I it's kind of baffling to me that, like, Mark Venuti comes out and says, you know, hey, you know, this is unfortunate that this is the case, that this is happening. We hate to see him go. And then, like you said, and um, he comes out and says, oh, no, we've been looking at this for years now. So, you know, I think it's interesting to see that there's not as much dialogue as you may think there would be, right, for a major company being in your backyard. I think also it is a hitting loss because of the amount of jobs that are in the region there. I think there was, was it 60, 60 jobs or I something? I think about, well, and, and a, roughly 20 in the manufacturing part. And what I also found interesting was that they offered positions with the new company Michigan to only eight of those. So mm. I don't know why, why they wouldn't number. offer the entire workforce the chance to migrate. Again, it just all, none of this is being done in, for operational reasons, it's being done. Right. The, I don't remember the exact quote, but basically they're trying to pretty up this company and make it attractive for some investors to buy up. And let me throw one more thing into the mix <laughs> when they're talking about the risk of going bankrupt. What does it cost to be the title sponsor of a football bowl game? Yeah. And right. was that maybe not the greatest decision that they ever made if they were trying to be profitable as a juice producer. Yeah, that's a critical part too. You know, I, you know, how do you grapple with running a Super Bowl game? You know, what I mean, in that sense, and investing in that and putting it out there. I understand that they think it's a smart marketing strategy, but you have to, you know, you have to consider these things. And let's be frank, you know, subsidized by New York State, and like you're saying, we don't know what that shapes out to be. But that's a lot of money we're talking to sponsor a game of some sort, of any sort. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what the fee is, but I, I mean, I, I would imagine that's got to be upper six to seven figures probably to yeah, be the title sponsor of a bowl game. So, yeah. And I think they've done it now for, I don't know if this was the first year or if they'd done it the year before. So a few things that stuck out to me. One, um, the admission that uh, private equity investment played a role in the exit, which is what, Ted, you were talking about. Um, that seems like it should be something that's, that folks in economic development, especially if they're handing out state tax breaks, are aware of. They should be aware of that happening, That if that's where the money is coming from, to run the business. They should be aware, because I feel like in that situation, and we kind of see it in um, in the tech space a lot where you have a lot of private equity being dumped into these startups and the startups grow and it literally is just it's it's all about selling like it is you're building it to sell it well um, and to be clear I, I mean I've got no problem with capitalism I've got no problem with somebody starting a company I wish I could start a company and sell it for <laughs> big profit the problem is when that becomes the primary motivating Objective. factor yeah. Cherry Bundy is no longer a cherry juice producer. They're now a shiny toy for some equity company to buy up. So you mentioned something that, that tripped off of an issue that I, I feel like we see a lot in economic development. This debunks the idea, the myth, I guess, that uh, if you build it, more will come, right? Because if that were the case, we would have seen cherry trees popping up all over the place, cherry orchards, you do left and right. Didn't happen. Um, 
the other thing is, it's interesting, right? Because all of the, if you go back and you read through all the press releases over the years that have come out about uh, this company, it was touted as this this grassroots small business that grew into a national player. And it, it's interesting because it's almost like you're you're paying for the training or you're paying for the setup fees so that someone else can benefit. Right. You have to kind of wonder now, you know, all these other incubators over at that technology farm, are they going to use New York State's ref, uh, resources and then take <clears throat> off to go somewhere else? And, and I think the other thing, when you talk about it from the economic development standpoint, and I know some of these people involved and I like them, I think they're good people, but throwing resources at producers doesn't work. What drives the economy is consumer spending. Mm -hmm. If they took every dollar they're spending now on economic development and gave it to consumers in the form of direct payments, that would stimulate the economy. If you got a $1,000 check or $5,000 check tomorrow, and if I did and Gabe did, what would we do? Mm -hmm. We'd go buy stuff with it. <laughs> That's what creates jobs. It doesn't... You can't... You can't say we're going to build a factory and then people are going to buy this stuff. You build a factory when people say, I want this stuff. When people say, I want cherry juice, okay, I'll build a cherry juice plant. It doesn't work the other way around. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, too, because it feels like economic development in New York State has kind of been reverse engineered for a long time now For since uh, the the... Handouts began, the big handouts. I'm talking about the economic development prizes, the revitalization funds for different downtowns. I'm talking about um, the, the big tax breaks that we see IDAs give out. Um, but at the end of the day, economic developers can't beat New York State's problems. Because if you take what, what Cherry Bundy said at face value, they're leaving New York State because New York State is too, it's too difficult to do business here. So if you're taking them at their word, then... All of the economic development investment in the world from New York State, all the millions handed out to the Finger Lakes, the Southern Tier, Western New York, it's not going to beat the fact, it's not going to eliminate the fact that when all of those funds are gone and if the business has survived, doing business in New York State in a lot of cases just isn't the best business decision or it's just straight up impossible. Well, and beyond anything specific to New York is you have to have a demand for the product. Look at photonics. Photonics was going to be the big thing and the Infotonics Center in Canandaigua and photonics this and that and the other thing. And here we are, how many ever years later, does anybody know what that is? Does anybody know what they produce? Does anybody want it? Mm -hmm. e economic development, economy starts with demand. It really does. That, that's what drives everything. The personal computer didn't pop up because somebody said, let's build computers. It popped up because <coughs> people said, I want this product. That's, again, you just, you can't build it and they will come. It's like, find out what they're coming for and then build that. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because like, I think to myself, if this system of economic development was going to work, the one that we're in now, um, it would have had to have come with the admission from the jump that things were not right in the business climate in New York, particularly upstate New York. Um, and there would have to have been some concessions made and changes made along the way to ensure that 
after the tax breaks and after all of the, the dollars ran out that the businesses could withstand the, the cost of doing business here and continue to operate. And I think that's that's been the big miss. Um, and it's interesting, too, because, you know, we saw in Geneva play out with, with uh, Port 100 that, you know, there was skepticism initially about investing in super small businesses, in startups. But clearly, that's where economic development funds should be going, is with the small businesses, <coughs> the sole proprietorships, the, the actual small businesses. Right. And, and, you know, we've discussed this before and we'll continue to. The problem is if you're in the economic development business, you need success stories. And I've said this a million times, company adds 200 jobs is a big headline. 200 companies add one job apiece doesn't get you a big headline and it doesn't make you look like a success. But at the end of the day, it's those small companies where growth comes from. It's not chasing after the big hit. And that's the way they seem to to want to do it. Let's get that big announcement where somebody comes in and promises 500 jobs. And of course, when we check back five years later, it's 72 instead of 500. So it'll be interesting to see if there's any kind of change in the approach Will there be any sort of clauses put in going forward where, okay, if we're going to give you this support, we expect you to stay in New York for five years? I mean, that's part of the, some of these tuition deals and things are predicated on, you know, you stay and you work in the state for X number of years. I mean, I got a a Sunny May loan when I bought my first home and I had to keep it for a certain amount of time. I couldn't use the state of New York's funds to buy the house and then turn around and sell it a year later. So maybe that needs to be taken into account where we say, okay, if we're going to lift you up and get you on your feet and turn you into a multi-million dollar company someday, then you need to pledge to stay in New York for X number of years, or you need to pay a penalty. You want to go to Michigan? Fine. Okay. Can we have our million dollars back that we gave you? Or whatever it was. I don't know the figure. I I would argue that it needs to go further, I think, because when you look at this, um, I don't foresee anyone going into that space anytime soon, once Cherry Bundy is gone. Um, there is plenty of empty commercial space along that stretch of 5 and 20, um, and I just don't see it. So now BJ's is going to be gone. You have that empty space. You've got the old plaza behind the gas station that's been empty since I was Olympia. A, a child. Yeah. And now you have the old Kmart and the that space there, which is essentially empty aside from big lots and a couple small retailers there. But the Tops store is effectively empty or will effectively be empty. It, it And it takes years. Like it takes years and years and years for these communities to recover. So like even putting a five-year, if you're going to get state money, if you're going to get state economic development money, the the, the clause should be closer to 20 years. Because I've been on this earth for 30 years, and I haven't seen a damn thing change in that plaza across the street from Tops. And, of course, the problem with that (laughs) is if you put this clause in, this penalty clause, saying if you leave early, you owe us, some other state won't, and they'll go there instead. That's that's the other part of the economic development picture is the race to the bottom Hmm. to see who can throw the most benefits I remember famously when Amazon wanted to come to New York City and the city refused to grant them the tax breaks, a lot of people got very upset, and then it turned out Amazon wound up locating there anyway because they really wanted to be there. 
So in this case, they were giving them incentives to do something they really already wanted to do anyway. Yeah, it's this. And, you know, I, I think it could be remedied by seeing more investment in the small players in the business community rather than investing it in the, the big out-of-staters or whatever the case may be. Um, anyway, moving on. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks, I'm certain. Um, so a pair of official misconduct stories that, that we've been talking about and sort of covering um, over the last uh, couple months. Um, obviously, the most recent one is the, the one involving the Owasco Highway Superintendent. Um, if you want to read more about that, I linked it in the story. So just scroll down after we're done here, click on it, and you'll be able to see all the things you need to see about that. Uh, his, the charges against him will be dismissed, according to the Auburn Citizen. Uh, they reported that uh, he will have to pay about $650 in restitution and stay out of trouble. Um, but this isn't the only official misconduct story, Ted, that we have obviously been talking about. Um, there's a pretty significant one here in Seneca County that I think is worth mentioning as well. Former County Manager John Shepard and former Finance Director Brandy Deeds. Um, so they are both, from their prior roles with Seneca, are facing a variety of charges. Uh, Deeds is facing, I think, about nine or ten felony counts, and uh, Shepard is facing a single count of official mis misconduct, which is a misdemeanor, to be fair. Um, I don't, I don't want to talk about the individual cases. What I want to talk about is how these things tend to be handled, or the way they seem to be handled, and the outcomes that we tend to see attached to them. Um, to the casual, the casual viewer. Um, who maybe just tuned in and out of this Owasco story. Um, the initial report indicated that there was more than $1,000 lost in some way, shape, or form, plus maybe manpower, things like that. Um, he's going to have to pay back $650. In the case of Seneca County, you have tens of thousands of dollars which had to be spent um, and maybe that I might be misspeaking. That number might actually be over a hundred thousand dollars. I'll have to I'll have to get that ironed out um, it, for audits and follow up from mismanagement in the finance department uh, between the 2016 and 2018 uh, timeframe. So, with that being said, and that's a case that's both of those cases are still sort of in the hold off period. How does it feel? you think, to the average reader, listener, taxpayer, when they see that these cases appear to get uh, taken a lot less seriously, even though if you care about good government, they're pretty damn important. Well, and, and it's like Jackie would say if she were here, there, there, there tends to be government gets very insular and everyone knows each other. And there tends to be, it goes back to, again, one of our themes, criminal justice in general, that if you're kind of a white-collar professional who commits an offense, you get treated differently than if you're at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. One of the difficult things is always in punishment, how much do you take somebody's record in account? In, in the case of the Owasco Highway Superintendent, I don't know the individual, $600,000 in the grand scheme of things is pretty penny ante. If he's done a good job in his position, he screwed up, make him pay it back, you know, fine him, do whatever, I can understand that. The Seneca County case is, is a lot bigger than that. But the, but the general thing on the other side of the coin is that when you're put into these positions, it's a public responsibility. And, and probably violating that should be taken pretty seriously. 
we really don't want people running around in government with their hands in the till taking money out. Well, and that's the thing, too. Like, I think more than anything else, and, and Gabe, you can sort of jump in here in a second and, and give us what you think about this situation. But, like, to me, there are so many different things that are weighing against government and so many different things that are eroding trust in government. And it's like, you are absolutely correct, Ted. If it is only $650 or $1,000 in the grand scheme of things in a town that probably has a budget of, you know, 10, 11, 12 million dollars, probably not that big a deal. That said, to the casual taxpayer, they're going to say, well, that's what he got caught doing. Just imagine what he didn't get caught doing. And it all depends on whether the individual is well-liked of course, or a pain in the butt that nobody likes. If he's a pain in the butt that nobody likes, they maybe treat it much more harshly than if he's a good old boy that everybody likes and everybody thinks, you know, well, and, and he screwed up and, you know, probably... Who knows? Maybe had every intention of trying to put the money back in and and not get caught. You see that yeah, happen yeah. where somebody says, "I'll just take a little bit here because I'm short, and I'll put it back, and no one will ever know." Uh, you know, I don't know if that's the case here or not. And, and I think part of it too is is this idea, right, that if government is working that way, where that can that sort of in and out can happen. Um, it paints another grim picture to the average taxpayer who's like, oh, what's really going on with my tax dollars? Seriously, like, what? what is this? Um, you know, it's like, well, Gabe, jump in here. When you read this story as an outsider, because in this case, you are, you're a true outsider to the state and to the, the region. When you hear stories like that, or you see stories about official misconduct or, or elected officials or town officials, city officials screwing up, how do you react to it and, and how do you place it in the grand scheme of things? Yeah, you know, I, for me, I think it goes back to the, the core of this is that, right, it's a community issue and that the community actors are the ones who can hold them accountable. And in that sense, the people who live in that community, if they want to, you know, deem that the Owasco Highway Superintendent should be punished more, so be it then. And that needs to be a choice by the public in that public sphere. It can't be done in an executive um, meeting or right, right, session right. or something of that sort, but they need to make a choice and say, do we support this? Do we condone this action or not? Even symbolically speaking, I think it's really important that they do show that because then, as they, as you were saying, taxpayers say, oh, they won more corruption in local city government. Yeah. So I think that's really important to um, contextualize in that relationship. Yeah, and, you know, I think... As local officials are able to more and more um, work in sort of the background and not be as media continues to shrink, there is less accountability. And, you know, if it weren't for the Auburn citizen, this story never would have even seen the light of day, essentially. So, you know, it's, I think, important to sort of think about the implications. And to your point, Gabe, I think it's interesting that, like, you know, I hear that argument a lot. Well, the legal system has gone as far as it has, as far as it can. It's up to the voters. Well, in this case, it might not be up to the voters for another four years. And are they going to remember this? Like, it doesn't always feel completely clean in that regard. And the other interesting thing, I guess, I I just want to point out is it seems like some of the uh, feedback... Uh, from his supporters, and I, I know nothing about the Owasco Highway Superintendent other than that he was charged in this case. 
um, that it was politically motivated or there was a feeling that it was somewhat politically motivated. If he's paying money back in restitution, he was not innocent, right? Like right. we can acknowledge sure. like it is verifiable at that point that he was not innocent in the completely innocent in this situation. Could have been an honest mistake, but an honest mistake is an honest mistake. And he just won the election too, right? It was right. just his past cycle. Which goes to the point, you know, if the voters did want to decide that they no longer wanted this individual representing them or working for their tax dollars, they aren't going to have the opportunity to do anything about it for, you know, another two or four years. That said, Highway superintendents, and maybe this is just a reflection of of how poorly uh, elected officials in general are viewed um, in this very polarized time. Highway superintendents seem to be some of the most liked people in government. They're oftentimes the everyman. They're the hard workers. They're the ones who are doing the... The work that literally keeps the lights on. Right. It's the guy who'll come around and fix your pickup truck if it breaks down because yeah. he knows how. So and I, I think that if there was something, uh, you know, because I, I can't recall the exact circumstances, but there was another uh, interesting kind of like conflict of interest story a couple of years ago in Cuga County. And I want to say it was between Montezuma and maybe one other community um, where there was this this perpetuation that, you know, he was somehow operating on the, the sort of edges of what was legal. But at the end of the day, it didn't really seem like in that case, the town had the right um, rules in place so that it wouldn't happen again or that it, it couldn't happen to start with. Um, but these people, like the, the way I look at it and the reason why I mention that is because, you know, a lot of these elected officials need to be um, appropriately compensated so that they aren't seeking out these these extracurriculars that they shouldn't be. And Jackie Augustine would would argue with me until I ran out of breath on this topic. But, you know, what do we expect? I compare it to, I'll use Geneva as an example. Members of city council make something, I think, like $4,000 a year. They get like a $4,000 stipend. One, you're always going to have people who are barely half invested if that's all they're getting, because that's just reality. And two... If you're, if the expectation is that you also at the same time go above and beyond for your community, you're going to have to find a way to supplement your income or have another job or do something. And you're just inviting this situation to seemingly play out over and over again, where we say, oh, there's another corrupt elected official. Well, yeah, because they aren't compensated. They aren't employees. You can't hold someone who's not compensated accountable. I hate to say it, but that's like reality. Well, I'm not sure that it even has that much to do with that. I think that there's always a temptation when you're in these kind of positions. So if you're a highway superintendent, you've got a petty cash fund or a credit card or something. So if a part breaks on the dump truck or on the plow, you you order a new one. So what's to stop you from ordering a part for your car or your truck on the same card? Now, like I said, maybe you have every intention of paying it back at some point in the future. And, and I, again, I don't know all the details of the story. Maybe it is politically motivated. Maybe he's been doing this for years and everybody looked the other way and he always paid the money back and someone on the other side of the political divide found out and decided to make hay about it. I, there's always going to be that temptation when you're in a position where you can handle public funds to divert some of them your way, even if it's temporarily. So, I, I mean... 
again, I, I kind of, I guess, I go with what Gabe was saying about it's, you know, it's the town's decision. If everybody agrees, you know, he's a good guy and he screwed up once, and make him pay it back, and let's move on. I, you know, that's their decision to make. And of course, we're going to keep talking about this uh, topic as we. What I what I think we might do is because we were getting a bunch of questions this past week. Um, to our email address and, and our Facebook account about um, issues related to transparency in government. I, I think we might dedicate an episode to that and just kind of like run through some basics of what happens at meetings and things like that. So watch for that in the next uh, couple weeks. But as we run out of time, Ted, where can folks listen to you Monday through Friday? On the Finger Lakes Morning News, that's on WGVA in Geneva, 95.9 FM, 1240 AM, and WAUB in Auburn, which is 98.1 FM and 1590 AM, and together we're called Finger Lakes News Radio. And gentlemen, thank you very much for coming in this morning. Thank you. Uh, as always, thanks for joining us. We will be back next week with another episode. In the meantime, though, uh, download the FingerLakes1.com app. And find the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. For Gabe and Ted, I'm Josh. I'll see you next time.